0: We're kicking off a new sermon series this morning, and we're so glad that you are here with us for it. Uh, If you haven't uh, figured it out by now, but we're going to be talking about the book of Acts for a while. And the book of Acts, I think, is one of the most interesting books in all of Scripture uh, because of kind of what it does. Acts bridges basically the Bible to today. It kind of serves as this connection between the life and ministry of Jesus, the things that he taught while he was here on earth, the wisdom that he imparted to his disciples and followers and then he kind of hands off the baton to those he leaves behind and he invites them to continue that work and continue that effort in the world and that has continued for the last two thousand years. Now what is fun about the book of Acts is it's kind of like a part two, it's a sequel And it's a sequel to the book or the gospel of Luke. And so the way that kind of Luke writes these two works, they were kind of probably written on scrolls. And you could imagine that the end of Luke, if you unrolled the scroll, would kind of overlay onto the beginning of the book of Acts. And so if if you kind of turn to the end of Luke, I think it's chapter 24, and you read that, and then you read the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, what you'll notice is like, oh, it's like almost the exact same thing, just using different language. Now, the, the book of Acts was written probably about 30 years after Jesus' death. So somewhere around 62, 63, 64 A.D. Uh, and it kind of tells the story of what happens once Jesus leaves. It was written by uh, probably somebody named Luke. I know that's surprising to many of you this morning. But written by somebody named Luke who was probably um, some type of physician. And he was paid or commissioned to kind of go research all of these things that people were talking about in in Jerusalem about this man named Jesus. And you can read about this at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He says, you know, I'm writing to you to kind of give an account of all of the discovery and research that I've done. And basically, here's what i found. And what he concludes is all of these eyewitness testimonies, all of the evidence points to this Jesus person really living, really performing miracles and healing people, really dying, and then really coming back to life. And so this is kind of this a kind of eyewitness account. Luke has compiled all of this information. And then he continues and writes about what happens next once Jesus leaves. And really, uh, the purpose of the, the book of Acts is really this idea about, um, if you would imagine like a pebble or a rock being thrown into a still pond of water, you throw it in and you just see the ripple effects. The book of Acts is really kind of documenting the ripple effects from Jesus's life and ministry. And this is what we see. And really, uh, if I could kind of sum the entire book of Acts up in a tagline, I would borrow it from uh, what I think is probably one of the finest pieces of marketing in the history of the world. I think this line is so good that, I'll just show it to you. What starts here changes the world. Now I was, as a graduate of Texas A&M University, I was nervous to show this this morning. I'm like, oh, everybody from UT is gonna get a big head. But then, y'all had a great game against Arkansas yesterday. And I was like, you know what, I don't have to worry about that anymore. So your one uh, consolation prize this morning is that, I think that's an incredible phrase. Whatever advertising firm came up with this, I mean, it's like everybody, SMU even copied it, my alma mater, SMU, uh, they copied it. They're like, world changers, begin here, you know, it's like, okay, y'all just ripped off what UT is trying to do. But I really think that idea is really the idea behind what the book of Acts is all about. It's this idea that what starts here really does change the world and really has changed the world. And if you think about where we are in culture and society today, all of some of the kind of the modern conveniences, the ways that life and culture and society have been like dramatically improved, it all comes and is traced back to Christians. You know, if you look at the kind of the hospital and the healthcare systems started by Christians. The Red Cross, started by Christians. Most of the humanitarian aid organizations in the world, started by Christians. The university systems, especially the elite university systems, believe it or not, even though they may uh, not reflect it today, all founded and started by Christians and by pastors. Kind of the abolition of slavery, uh, uh, women's rights, all of this was brought on by Christians. There's this really interesting kind of study that was done uh, about the best countries in the world for women and children. And it was kind of ranking those countries that kind of had the highest quality of life for women and children. And there was this really not surprising correlation that the top 10 countries with the highest quality of life, the highest standards of living for women and children, also happened to be the countries with the highest amounts of kind of self-purported practicing Christians. The converse was also true those countries with the lowest levels of quality of life and standards for women and children also happen to be countries with less than 10% kind of self identified Christians. Now, this isn't kind of uh, a mark against other world religions, but I do think it reflects what is true at the essence of Christianity, not Christianity in name because we know a lot of people and we know a lot of instances throughout history where the the name of Christianity has been used to hurt people and to wound people. Uh, But Christianity at its core and at its essence, in its message, when those people really live what Jesus taught, rises the levels for all humans. It bestows dignity upon all people, independent of gender, race, origin, class level. What starts here and what started here in this book that we're going to look at over the next 10 weeks really has changed the world, and it really is changing the world. And so for those of you who love history, uh, you'll really like the book of Acts. Uh, it chronologicals, that's not even a word. It like, what's the, what's the way you say it? Chronicles, thank you. Thank, hey, team, you know, we're better together. It chronicles, it chronicles uh, basically kind of the first decade or so of the Christian Church. And if you don't like history, uh, you're really going to like it because it really kind of gives us some guidance and direction on how we're supposed to live today. So it's not just about what happened back then, but it's about what happened back then and how it should inform what should be happening today. And that for me is, is a pastor and somebody who kind of geeks out on church history stuff I find so cool. Because as we'll read through and study through this book, what you'll notice is that in many of the same ways that the first church kind of discovered, unpacked what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, I see evidence of here in these walls and here amongst you. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool to see the way that we come together and we pray together, we sing together, we encourage one another, we share meals together, we divide into smaller groups and we take care of one another. All of these things are kind of inherited from and borrowed from the way the very first church acted and operated. And So if you're here today and you're like, you know, Christianity feels like kind of this thing that feels really far away, that happened a long time ago, uh, it's a whole lot closer than I think you might realize. And I'm really excited that for the next 10 weeks, yep, 10 weeks, for some of you that feels like an eternity, um, and probably by week seven or eight, I'll probably agree with you. but. I'm really excited that we get to walk through this book together. So how about we jump in for those of you who that burnt orange is just like burning into your retina. and You're like, please change the slide. Uh, we'll do that. For some of you, this is your favorite Sunday. You're like here for the first time and you're a graduate. You're like, I like that place. We should go back. Don't get comfortable. All right. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. If you've already got your scripture journal with you, you can pull that out. If you've got a phone, Pull that out, too, to look at your Bible, not to check social media, unless you're tweeting about what a great church this is. That's your caveat. And uh, if you don't have any of those things or you don't want to do the work this morning, I'll read it for you. So here we go. This is the start of Luke's kind of um, book about the very first church. So here's what he says. In the first book, Theophilus, This is an acknowledgement and kind of paying homage to the first kind of part of this story that he wrote in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Theophilus is likely the person who commissioned Luke to write Luke and Acts. So in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and, and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. No surprise, Luke writes a gospel. The gospel is all about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now here's kind of the misnomer, is Acts, kind of its original name is called Acts of the Apostles, and the apostles are really kind of that group of people, the disciples, kind of that's interchangeable at times, but the people who kind of took the baton from Jesus, the immediate group of that 12 that you see. But as we read through Acts, you realize that it doesn't really talk about the disciples all that much. And so really this is more about the way that Jesus' ministry through the Holy Spirit continues uh, through the first church into today. So it really should be like part two of Jesus' work in the world is really kind of how acts should be understood. But Luke says, I write about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, in verse 3, it says... That after staying with them, oh wait, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many, convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what Luke is talking about right here, there's a period of time after Jesus is resurrected, before he ascends to heaven. And it's this 40-day window where he kind of gathers the disciples back to him. He appears to a bunch of people. Uh, in, In different accounts, it says hundreds of people saw the resurrected Messiah. But Jesus gathers his followers together. And for about 40 days, he's teaching on this particular idea, the kingdom of God. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel of Luke, or if you were here a couple of years ago when we did through Lent, we looked at the gospel of Luke. All Luke talks about, he frames this idea about the kingdom of God. And for Luke, the kingdom of God and the way that Jesus talked about it was, it's about the unification of two realities. You say, I don't know what that means, Stephen. So basically, first century belief systems, there were two realms, two realities, earth and heaven. Earth is where we live. Heaven is not a physical location. It's not bound by space or time or geography. But it's this kind of divine reality where God operates. It's the space in the area in which God operates. And throughout the Old Testament, there are particular moments where heaven comes down to earth and the kingdom of God exists. Kind of the primary place where heaven and earth touch in the Old Testament is found in the temple. Uh, maybe you remember that there's a special room in the temple called the Holiest of Holies and only the high priest could enter because it was, a, it was literally the space where it was believed that heaven and earth touched. And if you walked in there and you weren't um, kind of the highest priest, you would die. Well, what Jesus is teaching about is that there's something new that's happening in the world. In the kingdom of God, what's happening is heaven has come down to earth. And what that means is really that there's now the availability and the opportunity for us to experience life as God intended. So, some of the kind of the hallmarks and the characteristics of the kingdom of God would be the way that uh, suffering and oppression would end, that justice would be restored, that lives would be elevated, that all humans would flourish. You know, we still have kind of human rights violations in our day and age and time. But back then, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, only a small group of people really had any type of life and standard of living that we would even resemble today. And so if you weren't kind of born as a Jewish male and a landowner, you know, there weren't many rights for you at all. And in fact, you basically had no protections from the abuses of other people. So all women and children were particularly vulnerable. Anybody who was a slave was particularly vulnerable. But Jesus shows up and he says, listen, there's something new that's happening in the world. And it's gonna, it's gonna allow for those people who have been oppressed, who have been abused, who've been taken advantage of, they're gonna now have equal footing with everybody. Everybody is now gonna be taken care of. It's this new kind of new world order that's being ushered in that things are going to exist in the world as God intended them to. And this is not new with Jesus, this idea of the kingdom of God being on earth, this was God's plan all along. This is what was intended in the Garden of Eden. And then when that didn't work, this is what was intended with the, the tribe and the family of Israel. This is why God gave them the commandments so that if they followed these rules, the rules would help them live and usher in this place where everybody was taken care of where all people had their needs met, where uh, all kind of human levels were at the same place. And so, Again, we see how that doesn't work. And now Jesus comes and says, all right, something new is happening. And I'm announcing that the kingdom of God is here and now. And so for these 40 days that Jesus has the disciples after he's been resurrected, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. What exactly? We don't really know. Now, we have some evidence as we'll kind of walk through the book of Acts because of the way that these followers begin to live their lives. But it wasn't just a belief system. It wasn't just a set of ideas or ideals that they, that they held in their mind. Really what Jesus is teaching them about is a conduct, a way of life, uh, kind of an operating system for how they should live in the world. This was to help them kind of decide um, what values that they should hold most, the choices that they should or shouldn't make, the ways that they should be in relationship to other people. And informed how they spent their time, how they spent their energy, how they spent their resources. All of this was baked into the instruction that Jesus is given, giving the disciples during this window of 40 days about the kingdom of God. And so we'll keep going. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem. He said, Okay, here's what you need to know about how to bring and live in the kingdom of God. And then he ordered them: don't leave Jerusalem, but wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, a little bit about baptism. But baptism is simply just the initiation to a new way of life. That's what it means here in the church now. When we baptize infants or adults, it's basically acknowledging and affirming that they have begun a new life in God. That they've kind of been brought into, adopted into the family of God. And so when Jesus talks about how you've been baptized by John, but what's going to happen is you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, is basically you're going to be invited into this new thing that is happening in the world. You're going to be initiated. It's kind of like a rite of passage. You're going to be initiated into this new kingdom of God that is beginning here and now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. And Michael's already spoken to this beautifully. And so I'm just going to skip this part because I can't do nearly the same uh, level of justice that he did to that passage. So, Michael, thank you for that. Uh, but really it is. Jesus is saying, listen, you are not. You don't have to be responsible or in control of any of this. Like, God's still working behind the scenes, independent of your observations of, you know, your current political, economic situations. Just Just focus on the tasks at hand. And then in verse 8, and this is where we'll kind of stop and camp out. But Jesus gives them a promise. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this verse serves as a template and a blueprint for what will happen throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Jesus is predicting that the message this thing that the disciples are witnessing to will begin to spread. It'll fill Jerusalem and it'll bubble up and spill over and it'll go into Judea, kind of the county around Jerusalem, and then it'll spill out and spread from there and go into Samaria and then it'll continue to spread all the way to the ends of the earth. And as we walk through the book of Acts, this is what you see happening, kind of like ripples expanding from that pond after the the rock is thrown into it. Jesus is saying, what's about to happen here in Jerusalem is just going to expand and grow and expand and grow and expand and grow. And so really, Jesus is promising not only the disciples that they're going to have the opportunity to be witnesses to carry this message to the ends of the earth. But it's a promise that continued after their lives. Because if you look at kind of the history of the early Christian church, what you notice is that word witness. It really means to give account to. Not just with your words, but with your life and with your action. There's another word that means witness in Greek, and it's the word martyr. It means the exact same thing. Now, we know martyrs as those who give their lives for a cause. But it originates here in this idea that when you live your life after the example of Jesus, sometimes you really live your life after the example of Jesus, and it costs you your life. Whether literally or figuratively. And this is what we see throughout kind of the early church. and What we see throughout history is people who are dedicated to being a witness of Jesus Christ, to living in the example that he provides. Their lives take on a different character and shape. They're conformed into a new way of living, of thinking, of acting in the world, and that oftentimes requires that they surrender the things that they once held as important. Sometimes it means they actually even surrender their own lives. And this is what we see happening in kind of the decades and the centuries following kind of the writing of the book of acts in this period of time right after jesus's resurrection and then ascension into heaven there's this really cool letter written to uh we don't really know who he is but he goes by the name dagnitus which just really just means um, of god or god's son but somebody wrote a letter about 130 a.d kind of describing their observations of these early christians so The book of Acts is written 30 years after Jesus, he goes to heaven. This is written probably 100 years after that. And so this is what the letter says uh, to Diognetius. Christians are indistinguishable from other men and women, either by nationality, language, or customs. They don't look any different. You couldn't pick them out of a crowd. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. And this thing that is extraordinary about their lives uh, all comes back to the same idea of the way in which they were witnesses, the way in which they surrendered their lives for the betterment of other humans, the way in which they restored dignity upon people who were oppressed and taken advantage of, the way that they ensured that everybody had their needs met, the way that they cared for each other, even if you weren't a part of their tribe or looked like them or talked like them or dressed like them or lived where they lived. Now, another author, Rodney Stark, has kind of... Um, take an account of the ways that the early church spread throughout the known world at that time. And he describes this period of time and what this actually looked like. He gives some detail to kind of flesh out what is being written to Diognisius about the way that their lives were extraordinary. And this is what Rodney Stark says. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. What you see again and again, and there's another kind of passage I want to read, what you see is Christians taking care of, providing for the most vulnerable in their communities, the most vulnerable people. Now back in that time period, if you were homeless or impoverished, you didn't have a lot of means available to you to receive resources, to take care of yourself. Um, Oftentimes you were without ability uh, to make a difference in the kind of the trajectory of your life. It's not the same in the, um, the way that we oftentimes kind of have a crass attitude about people we see panhandling on the side of the road. Like, why don't they just get a job? This was a different character and climate. There probably weren't, there wasn't a lot, a lot of mobility for them to change their station and lot in life. And so, what do Christians do upon identifying this need? They offered charity, compassion. They took care of these people, and in addition to offering them hope, restoring and bestowing a sense of human dignity, and worth to these individuals. To cities filled with orphans and widows, truly the most vulnerable in any civilization or population, what did the Christians do? They provided a new and expanded sense of family. They took them in. They really did care about the value and the quality of life because they brought them in. They didn't just hold up signs, but they put their words into action. And they made a difference, and they made sure that the people who were most vulnerable were taken care of. It goes on. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. It tore down walls and built longer tables. In to cities faced with epidemics, fire and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. What you see during this time period in the first and second and third centuries of the early Christian church is Christians laying down their lives when everyone else has given up on a group of people. During kind of the Roman plagues, when people would leave towns because of the presence of a plague, Christians stayed and took care of people, often at the expense of their own life. This is what you see again and again and again, and we'll see it throughout the book of Acts, is Christians willing to truly be a witness to their belief, to their confidence that Jesus Christ came and is ushering in something new in the world and that they're willing to be a part of it with the way that they live their lives. And then back to that letter to Diognatius, this is how he kind of concludes this part of the letter. What you saw was the beginning, and let me show you the end. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. What the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. And so my question for us this morning, and the one that we're going to wrestle with, is, is that still true? Are Christians still the soul of the world? And if not, why not? You see, the book of Acts is not just a history about a group of people that lived 2,000 years ago, but it's about a calling. It's about a reminder of the tasks that we've been charged with, about the opportunity that we have to be witnesses in the world, to be the soul of the world once again. You see, the story of the early church has not stopped with the early church. It is a story that is continuing to be written today. In the same way that the early church and the story of the gospel has changed lives and saved lives, that story is still changing and saving lives today. As we were singing a little bit earlier, just having been here at the Grove since its beginning for the last almost four years, to look around and see the families and to see the names and to see the stories about the way that their lives have been saved and changed and bettered by the church It's easy to get emotional when you think about it, because this isn't just a piece of history. It's a story that is continuing today. And so my hope is that as we walk through this book, as we learn about the way that the early Christians lived, that we'll be reminded of the way that we're called to live today as well. Let me pray for our time together. We'll bring Michael and the band out to lead us in one last song. But I'm so glad that you're here this morning, and I hope that you'll be with us over the next several weeks as we continue to walk through this book of Acts. Let's pray. Gracious God, in the way that you poured out your Holy Spirit upon those who were gathered in that very first moment where the church began, God, we invite you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here to remind us that you have called us to be witnesses in the world. Maybe we don't go to Judea and Samaria, but Lord, allow us to be witnesses in our home. Allow us to be witnesses in our schools, in our friend groups, in our clubs, in our teams, Lord. Allow us to be witnesses in our places of work. Lord, allow us to share your message of hope with the world. God, we're grateful that we get to come together to be reminded that the church isn't a building or a service, but is your people living out your witness in the world. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.